previously on Teaching Like Ted Lasso. So if you got an offer to go coach in a different country, a different sport? Sport would probably be mountain biking. And what country? Oh, geez, Uh, somewhere in Europe. Too often, I don't think that we have teachers and coaches who know how to adjust in that, know what's needed. Yeah, and I think you hit it on the head. You have to be able to adjust, I believe. You know, you have to build those relationships because every every child's different. Every athlete's different. So you brought up Daniel. One of the things that Daniel told his girlfriend when he was struggling, he says, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, nobody's ever going to be able to understand what I'm going through. So I always say this. I'm Daniel's voice to get everybody to understand what he couldn't and that this is very common medical illness that's very treatable. Our guest this episode is Brooke Powers, a former middle school math teacher and the current managing director of academics, equity, and social justice at Open Up Resources. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. Warning, we expect that you've watched Ted Lasso. There will be spoilers ahead and scenes that don't make sense if you don't have some familiarity with the show. So today I thought we would talk about coaching. Mentoring. I mean, mean, coaching. Mentoring. (laughs) So I think that's the thing, right, is that we see both of these things on Ted Lasso. We want to talk about them in terms of teaching like Ted Lasso, so for teachers. So right. so let's start with the coaching aspect. And and even there, we can have multiple levels, right? Okay. So, so when you think about coaching in the classroom, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about autonomy, I think, to, okay. a, to a fair extent, right? So like kind of in that idea of a coach prepares their players, but their players have to be the ones who play the game, mm-hmm. right? I think back to when I was a worst teacher, I played the game and then asked them to kind of imitate me, mm-hmm. you know, but now I think about it, what, what can I do to equip them to go out and solve the problems and open up the middle? And... The following scene comes from season one, episode 10. Dad, when I see you coach soccer on TV, it doesn't look like you're doing anything. <laughs> well, it's because I'm not, all right? <laughs> it ain't like being a football coach back home, kiddo. I got a lot less control, because once the game gets going, I can't tell my fellas what to do, so I just got to hope that everything I've been trying to teach them made some sort of impact on them, and that they'll make the right decisions when they're out there on their own. You know, it's kind of like being a dad, I guess, huh? How much did you get that before you checked out? I drew a robot! That's cool, bud! In that scene, I think we're getting at what you're talking about, and what it reminds me of is gradual release of responsibility. Well, which has gotten a really negative reputation. Right, and partly because it's become a formula. Right, right. so what, what they're imagining is, I do, we do, just doing the same thing as I just did, then you do is doing the same thing that we just did. Right. How do you think of it differently than that? So I go to our friends from English Language Arts. I've heard Chris Tavani talk about it. Mm -hmm. I've heard Ellen Keene talk about it. I've heard Debbie Miller talk about it. And in all of those cases, 
It's about just being aware of what level what level of support students need. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's really related to a structure of assessment and response. If students are struggling, then they might need a model. They might need a right. demonstration. In English language arts, we talk about it as think alouds. Both you and I, I think have tried to consider that also in the math classroom. Open up your brain. Yeah. And part of the difference, that is really subtle but intentional is that difference between in a regular math class, a teacher telling students what to do, mm -hmm. as opposed to modeling, like you said, open up your brain and, and using eye language about here's how I solve it, making thinking visible. Right. And now it's a demonstration, not a dictate. Right, and in a demonstration, the learners are still active. Right. Right, because they're observing, they're making sense, you let them know that you're going to expect them to be able to tell you what they saw. Mm -hmm. The one that I think was the best for me was uh, Fisher and Fry's Better Learning Through Structured Teaching mm -hmm. because it really makes the connection between assessment and the choice. You give students opportunities to show where they're at and then you respond by, do they need a, a model? Do they need a mentor? Do they need just someone to monitor to make sure that they're making progress? Right, because a coach is, needs every player. Right? A coach can't say like, okay, these, these people are, are good, they're my starting, and the heck with the rest of these people. Right. right? They, they want every player to be the best they can be. Right. And effective- A good coach. coach. A good, well, that's what I want to say. Effective coaches, change their system to meet the player. So, so I think some of the difference between, like when people are justifiably upset about gradual release responsibility, it's because what's, what's being demonstrated is a specific algorithm. Right. Right. I'm going to show you how to solve quadratic equations with the quadratic formula, and there's no thinking. Right. And when we say it, we're trying to think about processes and practices. Right, right. right? which you see all the time in English language arts. Right. And I think there's something to Ted not being a football expert. Right? So he, he cannot teach them the uh, algorithms. Though they know those better than he will ever know them. What, what, can, what can he teach them? In there, it's more about the processes, the processes right. of trusting in each other. There's, you know, what we talked about in the last couple episodes about believing and trusting in one another and, and, and building relationships. And, yeah. and I think that, again, those are things that, that teachers can, I know that some of the work that you're doing with complex instruction is, is attempting to do things that are much more than simply the algorithm of, here, let me teach you how to do these things. So it was amazing. So my pre-service secondary teachers were at East Kentwood High School, a great local high school that's very generous with having a sent to watch, and they were seeing those uh, complex instruction norms in practice. Oh, wow. Like, even though they don't necessarily do complex instruction at East Kenwood High School, the students were not moving on until everybody got it. They were taking care of each other's understanding. They were rephrasing each other's work. They were making sure everybody was participating. It was it was beautiful, and these uh, pre-service teachers noticed, right? Mm -hmm. And I think as teachers, we have to connect with and be responsive to the 
the experiences and abilities of the, the students in the classroom or on the field and the, on the pitch or on the court. Yeah, and keeping, I think, in mind your, your purposes. Like, right. yes, you want to win games, but mostly you're about mentoring these players. So you use that term mentoring now. So how does mentoring differ? How do you think about it differently from, from coaching? Well, that's interesting. So, I, I mean, I think about it, there's a bit more of an individual relationship. Mm. I think of it as you're constantly working with the whole group. And mentoring is more in those kind of one-on-one -on -one or maybe one-on-small group mm -hmm. um, relationships. Yeah, and I think, that, I think about that happens, you see that a lot in Ted Lasso. I think both well and not so well. So what's an example of well for you? So I think the relationship between Keeley and Rebecca is an example of where it's worked well. Mm -hmm. Rebecca is very supportive. Keeley is very open to, you know, to getting that feedback and yet will push back every now and then. Mm -hmm. And according to Higgins, Rebecca is actually a great mentor. The following is a scene from season two, episode 12. I need some advice. I'm, I'm flattered that you came to me instead of Ted or Roy. They're at training. Well, instead of Rebecca then. She's the one I'm afraid of telling. I'm happy to be on the list. I'm scared. Well, look, that is perfectly natural. It can be terrifying becoming a boss. No. I'm scared of telling Rebecca I'm leaving. Oh, right, because she's so intimidating. Oh, she's one of my best friends. Ah, oh, yes, 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 yes. And you leaving would be a betrayal on a level usually reserved for Greek mythology. No. I just... I don't want to appear like I'm not grateful for the amazing opportunity she's given me here. Keely, a good mentor hopes you will move on. A great mentor knows you will. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, just made it out. Wow! So one of the things as I see this, and again, this is where maybe the language gets a little confusing. When I watch that scene and I think about that relationship, I think about cognitive coaching. So tell me more about that. So cognitive coaching is an approach that really is putting people at the center of the work. The irony here is that we're not talking about an athletic coach, we're talking about a stage coach. This idea of a, helping someone to get from where they are to where they want to be. Okay. And when I watch that relationship between Keeley and Rebecca, I see Rebecca helping Keeley to get to where she wants to be. To help her know that she's capable of these things. Right. And then once she's trying, what's working, what's not working. Now, on the other hand, I think there's examples of poor mentoring in this. And I think one example of that is Ted's relationship with Nate. Hmm. So James Selman, who I met at the mentoring conference at University of New Mexico, had a, a paper that he shared with me that talked about mentoring. And one of the sort of impediments to that is this belief of the rugged individual, right? Mm -hmm. That somebody, you got to do it all by yourself. And for some folks, that might work, but for, for others, they need more of a relationship, more of a connection, 
and it feels like at least Nate felt like that was not present as as he was looking up to Ted in that one 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 relationship. A great mentor by themselves isn't doing anything. A mentor needs a mentee who's also engaged in the process. And and initially, Ted does good mentoring of Nate up to the point where kind of where would you draw the line? At least Nate feels like it's the case when Roy shows up. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think that there's lack of communication for what's Nate's role now. And I think a good mentor helps people navigate these changes in the structure of, in this case, the, the organization. Yeah. And so what this means for teachers is to think about how, how do we help teachers navigate these changes that, that are happening in their classroom. And again, that's where I feel like cognitive coaching can help because there are those times where you might ask, would you like to know what some other people have done in this, this situation? Right. But more often than not, it's helping them to make sense of the, the landscape. But it's, but it's not ignoring the landscape. Right. In fact, like collecting data that the teacher can't collect themselves exactly. is a big part of that. Yeah, sitting down, asking them what data they'd like to collect and do that. And so, so supporting them through that. And for me, that connects back to what you were saying about Fisher and Frey and the assessment, right? Right. If we're not kind of collecting the relevant information, we're, we'll never know until it blows up. Right. <laughs> until it's too late in right. some cases. Right, exactly. So yeah, so this sounds like a good time to maybe hear from some of our experts. We have such incredible experts for this episode. Yeah. One of our favorite parts of teaching like Ted Lasso has been getting to know and getting to meet new people and listening about their work. And we're excited because we've got one of those moments right here. Teaching Like Ted Lasso would like to introduce Brooke Powers. Brooke, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thank you, Dave. I'm super excited to be here with you all. I am Brooke Powers. I live in Lexington, Kentucky. I was a classroom math teacher for 13 years and transitioned five years ago to open up resources where I'm now the managing director of academics, equity, and social justice. And really proud of that title because I think Open Up is the first company that's really worked to integrate academics with equity and social justice. You know, we saw after the Black Lives Matter movement, after George Floyd's murder, we saw a lot of companies adding equity positions and social justice positions that were kind of off to their side. And we said, if we're going to do this, we're going to incorporate it. So really proud of the work I get to do there and excited to be here with you all today. We know that you're familiar with Ted Lasso because you gave a talk at the NCSM conference, the 2023 conference called Coaching for Success, Five Leadership Lessons from Ted Lasso. So how did you become familiar with Ted Lasso? Kind of just by accident, to be honest. So we're a football family. We also like basketball. We're not a soccer family at all. So we heard all these people talking about this show. And my husband was adamant. He was like, we're not watching a soccer show. We're not watching a soccer show. And I think finally, we just got to the end of our show queue. And I was like, look, everybody says we have to watch Ted Lasso. Of course, one episode in, we were hooked. Definitely glad that we gave it a chance. Learned more about soccer, I think, than ever did my whole life, but really took a lot of life lessons away from it. So glad we gave it a a shot. And now it's my one show I recommend to everybody. So you know that one of the things that Ted does to get to know people is ask 
kind of random questions sometimes. Yeah. And this question actually came about from one of our earlier episodes. If you were going to coach something in another country, what would you coach and where? I think I would probably pick coaching rugby in Australia. I'm a big University of Kentucky fan, and we've had a lot of Australian punters. And so they're sometimes on some of our podcasts that I listen to, and they all talk about rugby in, the, in Australia is how they got their start and just how kind of brutal it is over there, to be honest, that, you know, the game of rugby is a tough one, but, you know, they tell all these amazing stories and I love Australia culture anyway. So I think that's where I would go. So as we said, you presented a session at the NCSM conference called Coaching for Success, Five Leadership Lessons from Ted Lasso. What were those lessons? Yeah. So definitely as I watched Ted, there were so many lessons I could take away. I honestly had a hard time boiling it down to five. I think when I started my first list, I had 25 and kind of had my team start going with me and knocking things off the list. But I think there's so many lessons we can take away from Ted. And so I'll show you quickly what kind of my five were. Obviously, we don't have time to dive deep into all of them. The five lessons are one, embrace identity. Two, be curious, not judgmental. Three, empowerment breeds confidence. Four, don't keep your eye on the ball. Five, be open. Good ideas come from anywhere. And these were kind of my big five takeaways. But the one that I think resonated the most is this first one around embracing identity. And I think we talk a lot right now in education about embracing student identity, right? We talk lots about inc incorporating other cultures. We talk about understanding our students' lived experiences. But as I have kind of grown, and part of what I learned from Ted is about embracing our own identity. I think there are many times in my career, especially teaching and especially coaching other teachers, where I did not embrace who I was. And as a result, could only be so effective. So, for example, much like Ted, I struggle with anxiety. That's something that I haven't named for a lot of people in the past, right? And I can think of many occasions where I am sure I showed up to work with other adults and children where my anxiety was showing. And rather than naming it that, I let them be concerned that it was them that was causing me to react that way, that I was frustrated with them or I was upset about a situation when really I was having this physical reaction, right, to something going on in my environment that had nothing to do with them. So that's something I'm trying to examine more is really how do we as teachers and leaders embrace who we are as people to show up as our best selves in the workplace. Number two is be curious, not judgmental. I think, again, we do great about that with students, right? I mean, I'm big on the five practices for orchestrating productive math discussion where we're asking all those questions, right? Understanding student thinking. But I got to thinking about when I'm actually coaching teachers, how many times am I just telling them, well, this is how you should be doing it? as opposed to getting understanding from where they're coming from. I don't think any teacher gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to teach this math totally wrong today, or I'm going to purposely try to get this class derailed, right? They're making those decisions. So I've learned to really start asking questions about why they are going about something the way they are. Along with that, empowerment breeds confidence. I think Ted does a great job of empowering the people on his team to be leaders. And again, we talk about that a lot with students, right? Making safe spaces for students 
to share ideas and conceptions, but are we doing that for teachers as math ed leaders? The fourth, probably the most controversial, don't keep your eye on the ball. But I think in education right now, we're so focused on that end result, that end test score, that end NAEP data. And I'm not saying those data points aren't important, right? They do give us lots of information, but sometimes we miss all the good and all the growth that's happening because we're so focused on the end result. I remember teaching a a child named Daniela. Daniela came to me in seventh grade math on a first grade math level, beginning in first grade. She ended seventh grade math on an end of second grade math level, right? So she grew two years in one year. However, if you just look at the data, what, what does the data say? Daniela is still behind. She's only on a second grade math level. And so I really try to focus more on looking at all the progress we've made and not just all the progress left to go. And then finally, be open. Good ideas come from anywhere. You know, I work for an organization that open up resources that we make all of our curriculum openly accessible online. We want folks to reach out and use our materials. We, I am all about teacher communities. You know, we talked a little bit, Dave, about Twitter. Some of my best ideas have come from Twitter, as Justin Ion calls it. It's involuntary collaboration when you take an idea from Twitter and make it your own. But really looking for all those good ideas, just like Ted did. Ted never had that ego of, you know what, that wasn't my idea. I'm not going to do it. Ted instead was like, who has an idea? What could we do here? I love that scene where he's just letting the team brainstorm all the different ways that they could try to win the game. And I think we should do that more. We should do less telling to teachers about what they should be doing and more about hearing what their ideas are that could help continue to advance student achievement and classroom equity. I love that you're thinking about, well, these are effective tools that we can use with with students. Why wouldn't we think about orchestrating discussions with teachers? Asking students is a good way to figure out good ideas come from anywhere. As a professional, as a someone who does PD, instead of coming in with my little, here's what we should do, I need to ask them. I need to get to know them. I need to get their ideas. We need to we we need to be part of a team doing that. And and that piece about we need to let go of the ego. I tell you what, people in my position need to let go of the ego so that it's much more of that class. I do not have all the answers for Agreed. you. I, I don't know. I don't know what your students are like. I don't know what your circumstances are like for me to fly in and come in and say, here's what you should do is, is just, it's, it's embarrassing for me. It's, it's an insult to you. And so, so I love that. Nobody has all the answers. And if they're telling you that they're lying, to be honest, because none of us have them all. We haven't cracked the puzzle. And that. I don't know that we ever will. Crystal Watson gave a keynote at the end of NCTM all about and really her children the children she taught kind of helped design the keynote it was all around the questions she asked children and their responses to that and how that guides her work what children really need to be seen again we do lots of kind of conjecturing about this is what kids need these are students experiences but we don't ask the kids we don't ask the teachers so really taking time to do that i think is key and and ted does that he makes people a priority I was intrigued by the identity piece, embracing our identity. So what are things that you feel like teachers, especially, like I said, I work with, you know, novice teachers, they're sometimes afraid to embrace their identity. They've been told or have a sense that they're not supposed to be their authentic self. 
in the classroom. And so, so what are, are there some things that, that teachers can do that can support that embracing identity? What are some suggestions you might have? I think that's a great question. And, and I will be honest, this is something that's a developing conception for me that I'm still trying to figure out because I agree with you. There are flaws in our system that make it so that teachers don't feel safe to be their authentic selves. And that that's an issue across the country, right? Not just in one space. And so I, I always try to be careful in telling people what they should be doing to embrace their identity because I don't know everyone's experiences, right? I know um, I can remember having an interaction with one district leader who was telling me that he, because his district was very conservative, you know, he couldn't talk about his partner at work, right? So he pretended to never have things to do on the weekend or evenings. He kept it very bland. And I can't pretend to know what that's like, right? So I try to avoid that. But the big thing that I've done is I've read every book that I can around myself. So I came from a really small town. I came from a town that we had segregated schools all the way through the time I was a senior. I think they finally, my younger sister's six years younger than me, and they finally combined her senior year. So I realized early teaching that I had a lot of bias as part of my identity. And I was the first person that would have been like, I don't have any bias. I think everyone's the same. I don't see color. I'm colorblind. So I had to just start personally interrogating myself internally around where are my biases? How is this showing up? So that's an example of a way that I was not public embracing my identity, but at home I was embracing that my bias as part of who I am. And it doesn't have to be something I'm proud of, but it has to be something that I work on and I'm aware of. So I think that's something, that's one thing folks can do, right? Is just kind of look, what are my blind spots? What are the areas that I don't feel I have expertise in that I want to work on? And then other things I do think come a little bit with age and wisdom, like like embracing my anxiety. As I told you, there were years where I know I showed up in spaces that, and I'm sure people thought like, why is she upset with me? Why is, why is she reacting this way? Why is she emotional? And really it was a reaction I couldn't control, right? And I wouldn't name that for them. Now that I'm older and I also see the way that I have found, especially now being in some leadership positions that me embracing that part of me gives other people the freedom to embrace that part of them. When I first switched over to the corporate world, I hid the fact that I was a mother. I actually was pregnant twice while in my time, and it had nothing to do with my company's culture. It was very accepting. But externally, when I would have partner meetings, et cetera, I didn't want other people at the org to look at that as being a weakness, right? Like, oh, she's, she's going to be on maternity leave. She's going to do this. And so I hit it. Folks didn't even know how to baby. But then I started thinking about for other folks on my team that identify as women, what example am I showing for them, right? I'm showing them that you have to hide who you are to be successful in a corporate environment. So again, don't have all the answers because I'd write that book about embracing who you are. And I never, you know, I know like I have a lot of privilege that I never want to extend my live experience to other people. But I definitely think the first step is just a lot of reflection on who you are, what are what are you keeping concealed and why, and then, you know, examining how that plays out in your work, even if it's nothing you can completely own publicly in front of those that you lead, if you're at least aware of it, right, you can start to think through how it may be showing up in the, in the, both the children and the teachers that you serve. 
Well, what's interesting is how this keeps coming up. And I think it's partly because we're talking about Ted Lasso, right? And he's he's dealing with these things. And, and he even is hiding some of these things for mm-hmm. a variety of different reasons. Some of it is the response that he he's pretty sure he's going to get. And yet in other areas, he's very open that he has lots to learn. That, that scene at the end of season two where he's talking to nate and he says what do i have to learn here that has been so much of what i feel like my mantra has been in terms of this whole idea like you said of being open what do i have to learn from this situation and so he's so open in some ways and yet this issue that he's having with anxiety and anxiety attacks he is he's holding he's holding on to his dad's suicide he you know he's not letting even some of his best friends know what he's struggling with that so i just got done with one of our other guests a friend of mine from high school who went on to be a coach his son took his own life at 19 and what he decided that he needed to do was he needed to talk about it to normalize it now he he was in a place of privilege so he was able to do that and start giving words to other folks because that was part of what Daniel was struggling with it was he felt alone he didn't know how to describe what was going on so Jeff learned as much as he could about mental illness about mental health about folks who attempt suicide so that he could talk about it now because he won a state championship after his child had died they wanted to ask about that and now he was had a platform to be able to do that he couldn't have done that as a first year coach right totally agree yes you have to develop that over time so part of when i you know when i talked about being pregnant twice one of those was a uh, a baby, our our daughter, our daughter, whose name's Sloan, who passed away at 30 weeks gestation for a heart, from a heart tumor after we worked really hard to try and save her. And I found myself in that situation being much the same as your friend. I wanted to talk about Sloan. I wanted to talk about what happened. I wanted to let other people not feel alone. The issue was my perceived reaction of how people would react. Number one, I didn't want to bring sadness to folks. But number two, the folks I was interacting with, their perceived reaction of me, if they brought it up, right? Like, oh, let's avoid talking about babies, pregnancy, daughters, right? We don't want to make her sad. When really, the thing that makes me feel the best is when people ask about Sloan, right? What was, remind me about Sloan. How old would Sloan be, right? Because I want that story to be told and lived as opposed to being hidden. And I think when you watch Ted, what you see is the few moments where Ted did not show up in a Ted way are moments where he was hiding those pieces of himself. And so I really have tried to work to put as much of myself out there as I can, because I know when I hold things back, that that's when not the best brook, you know, shows up in the environment. I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that. Sad to hear of your loss, but just like, Jeff, he's he's like I I enjoy talking about Daniel because it I mean it, it, it keeps his memory alive and it, it makes a difference to other people, right? Because Daniel was here and he mattered and his life mattered and his passing does not make any of that go away. And I think that's what people want to hold on to that hope of that the memory will be remembered beyond just you, right? I don't just want me to remember Sloan, I want other people to remember Sloan. 
Are there others of these leadership lessons that you feel like teachers would benefit from? So are there some specific strategies that you think about that as you're coaching teachers that have been powerful, have been purposeful, have been successful? The fourth that I mentioned about don't keeping your eye on the ball. I think there are lots of ways to do that. We are overrun with assessments right now, just to be honest. So I think really focusing on all those like good moments of every day, right? And finding ways to connect with the children and the teachers you serve. What are actual data points that you can pull that aren't just about proficiency, that aren't just about a teacher getting to level four on whatever evaluation tool you're used, but are actually about showing that the teacher grew. I worked with a district recently that I really enjoyed And they, when they did district walkthroughs, the tool actually changed over time and it changed as the teacher changed over time so that they could point to actual growth that happened and not just like, this is our one district evaluation tool and you're all ones, right? Instead, they started at a at a little bit of a lower level walkthrough tool, right? And they first focused on mastering these things, and then progress the teacher along, which I thought was brilliant. Because again, just like we talk about children, we don't want to just totally take all their confidence away. And that connects to that other one about empowerment breeds confidence. We do it to teachers all the time. I will never forget my least favorite observation when I was teaching was we were actually doing an activity on the computer. The kids were super engaged, right? So the principal comes in to evaluate the kids don't even speak to me, right? Like I'm walking around trying to get them to talk to me because they are so focused in on the activity. And I mean, that's what we all want as math teachers, right? Like kids that, and they are a hundred percent in, they're asking each other questions. They're trying to get it. And the feedback my principal gave me was that um, the kids needed to rely on me more during class. And I thought that's just because that you want this performative sheet to fill out, right? That the teacher did this and the teacher did that rather than saying, Brooke, you've you've moved down the continuum a little bit. Now the kids are more self-reliant, right? Which is the goal. So I definitely would say like, let's stop just focusing on what we think success is and start finding milestones of success along the way, especially now as, you know, we face the teacher shortage, face so many teachers leaving the profession. We have so many teachers coming into the profession that have not had all the training that I'm sure, Dave, you and I both had, right? Like we have to have ways to support them that are not just, well, you're not meeting the mark right now. You're not where we think you should be. So those would be the ones that I think I would hone in on the most and really encouraging folks to try to find some other definitions of success. The sixth one that I would add after I left the conference And I started talking to some folks. We were actually having kind of an equity and social justice discussion. And I was talking about how I felt like season three of Ted Lasso was a love letter to social justice. And they were pushing my thinking on that. And they said, why do you think that? And I said, well, because it would have been very easy for the writers on the show to avoid all those topics, right, that they covered. It would have been very easy to just stay kind of on the path they were on, this light you know, uh, you know, they did address mental health, et cetera, you know, suicide in the previous episodes that season three really went hard on racial justice, gay and lesbian rights. There was a lot there. Immigration, there was a lot there. And what to me, Ted Lasso did was the show in general built trust with the audience and then pushed the audience's thinking over time. So they used their platform, right, as a way to push for change. And I think as math ed leaders, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be building trust, right? We cannot 
You cannot go in saying, here's what we're going to do and why. We have to build trust over time. And then once we have that trust, we use that as a platform for change. I think we try to jump too quickly to the, hey, this is what I'm on this week. This is what we're going to do different. And we skip that whole building trust part. And I don't think season three of Ted would have been nearly as good if they hadn't spent all the time building trust with this on season one and two. I think people would have just turned it off. I love the idea of, so what do we do? And this is what I try to think about with with teachers as, as they're going into, especially pre-service teachers, is how do you take what's existing, right, and make some subtle shifts, make some subtle shifts to get to, because if you go in and try to do everything different, things push back. The curriculum pushes back or the students push back or your colleagues push back. But if you can make some, some subtle changes, then you can do that. And one of them is like you were saying, we try to get them to think about assessment in other ways, right? So it's you all, they all think about, they come into my class thinking about assessment being the quiz or the test or something like that. And instead, we look at, well, let's look at the curriculum. There are, in any class period, hundreds of moments to gather data about the content, but also about what students are engaged in, also about what it means to do mathematics. Definitely agree. We'll definitely put links to the things that we've talked about. Is there anything else that you'd like to make sure that our audience is aware of? It would be great if we could put a link to the site just because all yeah, my information is there. Yeah. And you can you can just do openup.org is a shorter way to do it. If you want, I have a visual I can show you about rapid release of responsibilities. I would be interested in that. John and I brought up as from a coaching standpoint, the gradual release of responsibility. So when you brought up the the rapid release, I, yeah, I, w- I think we would be really interested to know what that looks like. So the way I like to think about with rapid release of responsibility, and I think this actually is a lot of what Ted does, is that we start with the you do. We're starting with a warm up. We're starting with the players getting ready to do the thing where they're developing their ideas. They're starting to push through. Then we do, we work together. So as a team, we're practicing. And then finally, I do at the end as the coach, I'm just facilitating a recap kind of of what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what you all did. Here's a goal for next time. This is what we're going to work on next practice. One of the things I realized a lot as a teacher is even when I did that gradual release of responsibility, I am passionate that class should always end with the I do, which I know flips most models on its head, but I liken it to many times when I was teaching, we did great work for 58 minutes. Then I looked up, saw the bell was going to ring in two minutes. Everybody pack up, throw your stuff around, you know, like you got to get ready to go. And I liken it to showing a movie every day, but you never show the last 15 minutes. So the plot never resolves. Like we never actually came back together and said like, this is what we talked about today. Did we accomplish our goals? What are we going to start on tomorrow? Instead, I just set them free. And then the next day would start a new movie. And they were left like, but why did we do that yesterday? Kind of a thing. And so that's, you know, we call that the lesson synthesis at open up and think that's a really valuable part. So that's kind of why I like to flip this on its head a little bit. And Dr. Tim Kainold from Solution Tree really pushed my thinking on this a lot. We provide all these supports for kids in class and then 
frequently the only time they have for independent practice is we send them home and we would never send kids out on a football field or a soccer field and say, go ahead and do all the practice. And in two hours when you're done, I'll tell you all the things you did right and wrong, right? Instead, we're out there, we're providing coaching on the spot. We're saying, hey, keep your head up when you do that. Hey, you should be moved over here. Why are you doing it that way? And so that really kind of pushed my thinking to making sure that we're giving kids that time that you do time early in class to start grappling and developing conceptions with me supporting them so that then later they can be independent with that work as opposed to waiting for me to tell them what to do next. It's certainly one of the things that that I need to consider maybe reframing it because again, a lot of folks, when you put it in the order, I do, we do, you do, that's how they end up doing it. But what you're what you're doing right here is a lot of what we do with our lesson planning framework that uses sort of the workshop model that always ends in reflection, yes. that, which is also connected to, we talked about the five practices earlier, right? Making those connections. And the synthesis is another. I talk to my students all the time about how I ask them, how many times did you go home and you know, a loved one guardian asked you, what'd you learn today? And you said nothing. And everybody raises their hand. And I said, that's pretty typical because what happens is you don't have time to consolidate that learning at the end. You don't have a chance to reflect or synthesize or consolidate. And I love that word consolidate because right in the middle is solid, right? We're trying yes. to make this solid so that it lasts, that learning lasts. The big thing to remember is, is that even in this rapid release of responsibility, this cycle might happen multiple times in a class, right? Right. So we may do an activity and students have independent time, right? They're doing it. And then we kind of, they work through it with partners, you know, on vertical whiteboards, right? Whatever that may look like. And then I, as the teacher and synthesizing that activity so they can move on to the next activity. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is like 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, right? This is a cycle that should continuously be happening um, regardless of which model you're using. And I'm going to do a yes and at some point, that synthesize instead of the teacher leading the connection we want the students leading the connection we we do really want to make the the teacher obsolete in the classroom and Agreed. That's so that's part of like tying back to the five practices charge right it's not so much that the teacher has like a list of notes of like here's right. what you should have taken today it's more like I saw that Dave solved an equation this way, right? Can you compare that to how Brooke saw, you know, like what's the differences here and kind of helping them solidify understanding, but by using their words and work, you're exactly right. So they don't need to hear all my ideas about like what I think about how to solve this, right? They need to take their own developing conceptions and solidify them. And so I think that's what that synthesized part's really about. It's helping them take their individual ideas and make them solid. That's great. Well, as as expected, I learned from this. This is why we do this. I appreciate Brooke your your willingness to take this time and and share with us. Yeah, oh, it was fun. So thank thanks. you so much. You can find Brooke's contact information on our show notes. And this this is going to be this again might be two episodes. Two episodes yeah. so. Teaching like Ted Lasso will return with more on teaching and coaching in the next episode.
So if you were going to coach a sport you knew very little about... That narrows it down so much already. In another country. <laughs> so what would be the sport and what would be the... The country? country? It could be football, as they talk about in Ted Lasso, in any country but this one. Any country? You don't, you don't have I, one in particular I, I, I just, you'd like to... I mean, you've, been, you've traveled a lot, as we've established. So. Yeah. I, I like to go anywhere, right? So, yeah. And they play football everywhere. So if you have a job opening anywhere as a football coach, <laughs> John is available, except for the United States, I heard. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. How about you? So I've been thinking about this. I want to, again, I've done coaching. What I see Ted Lasso does looks very high stress. I don't I don't want any, any stress. No professional. Well, I don't mind professional, but I, I was trying to think about what would be at least not have a lot of people watching and second guessing and things like that. And so something came up recently on my social media stream that Cool Runnings is 30 years old. So anyway, so it, it has... You're going to coach bobsled? No. Oh. I would like to do uh, curling. I think I could do curling in Jamaica. I think that that would be low stress. Mm-hmm. I think that I'd love to be in Jamaica. I, I think that being able to spend some time in Jana- Jamaica near in an ice rink would, would be a, a little cooler. <laughs> help help me help, yeah, the, the, the heat. So, so I'm calling for So Jamaica, if you're looking for a curling coach, a curling coach I might be your guy. He's ready to sweep? I'm ready. <laughs>